could he do that? Are you on Donate What? Charles Darwin. Welcome, everybody, back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brabber, and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today, as we continue to work our way deeper into what has been a very fun NBA postseason thus far, we are going to be handing out awards to people from each series. So it's a pretty straightforward format to today, just as a way for us to talk about what has really stood out as being key to each of these matchups. We're going to give our MVP from each series thus far. doesn't necessarily have to be the best player because that's kind of boring, but whatever we see as being key and incredibly valuable in this specific matchup. And then we get to give a custom award for each series as well. And so we're going to start out West with this because honestly... The East is kind of a bummer right now. I think every Western Conference series is fascinating and super fun in its own way. The East, really, it's Hawks Knicks, which is a bunch of fun. And outside of that, not so great at this point. But we'll focus on the positive. Start out West with what has been a roller coaster of a two-game series thus far. Tons of fun. Grizzlies Jazz. Logan, who is your MVP of that series thus far? I mean... This series was probably the toughest to choose for just because I think it's the most unique series. Also, we've only seen two games so far. Um, you know, I think you'd be a fool to go uh, against somebody like John Moran for the overall uh, MVP, but I'll go ahead and give it to Dylan Brooks. I mean, he was imperative, obviously, to that uh, game one win against Utah, clawing it out. Aja, obviously. Uh, closed out that game with 10 fourth quarter points, but Dylan was imperative to getting to that point with 31 on the game. But, I mean, he was just as... Consistent in game two, getting to his spots, getting into that mid-range. And I think, I don't know, Carson, I want to ask you, if you changed your mind at all on Dylan at all? Like, I know that you've been critical of his scoring ability, but, like, I think he's, I think Dylan Brooks is a guy who can get you 21-22 genuinely every night. You were not around on that boat last time. Like, has, has another game in this series, has it changed your opinion or your mind at all about Brooks's game? The thing with Dylan is that he is certainly going to believe that he's one of those guys. And so sometimes he can be just because he will will himself to 20-something points. And that's what he's done throughout the entire postseason. He's been phenomenal. And as I touched on in this video I just did on the Grizzlies, over the last 25 games of the regular season, too, he was 19 a game on 39% from deep. He can have those explosive nights, no question. And he is a dog, and he is a guy who can be a bucket. But everything that I said last time still stands. He just doesn't have that one distinctive trait that can make you a truly elite, reliable night-to-night, 20-something point-per-game guy. He doesn't have the explosiveness. He doesn't have a lethal enough jumper as far as the consistency goes, and he doesn't have, like, otherworldly change in pace. He's just above average at a few things that means that when he's going to shoot the ball with the volume that he does because he believes in himself so much, he'll have some big scoring nights. I will not criticize Dylan Brooks right now. He's playing the best basketball of his life. They they have needed him 100% to play at this level, but... Do I think he can be a 22-point-per-game scorer for a postseason? Not efficiently and not in a way that is really good for the team if we're talking about a multiple-series run. But I don't like being put in a position where I have to criticize Dylan Brooks right now because he has been fantastic. Okay, well, I'm sorry to put you in that precarious position, Carson, but it's not okay. When you come along on the Dylan Brooks train uh, later in this postseason, I would also like a, a written apology. No, I've been on the Dylan Brooks train, Logan. This is what happens. I'm on a guy, and then you take it further. Every time, it's inevitable. No, but like when you come around on Dylan Brooks, I also expect <laughs> I expect a written apology. Um, on the other side, uh, for Utah, um, I've been really impressed with the play of Royce O'Neal, uh, just knocking down his catch-and-shoot mm-hmm. attempts, uh, really uh, being aggressive on defense. Um, he's not my MVP. I am going with Brooks. I do want to give another short shout-out to a guy, um, and that's Kyle Anderson. Um he just, 
he's a dog defensively, and it pains me to admit that just because I think Kyle Anderson is probably, I've said this on the pod before, the ugliest basketball player to watch, I think, in the NBA. It's just, it's weird basketball. I don't quite enjoy watching Kyle Anderson, but he's good at what he does, and he works hard. Um, My MVP in this first series, though, is Dylan Brooks. He's been consistent, and if the Grizzlies expect to come back, they're going to need him to pull his weight and be a genuine, uh, not to win this series, to make it competitive, because I don't expect the Grizzlies to win. But if they want to stay in this series, Brooks is going to have to produce night in, night out, and he's certainly done that in these first two games. Yeah, the Grizzlies are just playing out of their mind right now. And Brooks is obviously a driving force in that. Kyle Anderson, as you mentioned, defensively has been so outstanding. 10 steals in two games. I actually don't think he's that ugly to watch. He is obviously highly unconventional, but he's so much better than he ever has been before. I mean, I think he was a 78th percentile pick and roll scorer this year. Like, he does really have... I guess you call it change in pace. It's more just lack of pace, but it still catches people off guard. And I love his passing, but defensively, yeah, man, his hands, his length, his anticipation, he has been phenomenal. Brooks has been phenomenal, but I got to go with Ja, man. And it's interesting that we obviously focus so much on the Grizzlies here, but they have been the overachiever to get this to a game apiece at this point. But Ja has been utterly phenomenal. I mean, he scored 73 points through two games, his first two playoff games after obviously a pretty spectacular performance in the play-in as well against the Warriors. And he has scored 61 of those 73 points either at the line or in the restricted area. And this is what I just talked about again in that video on the Grizzlies, which I'm going to promote a couple times here because nobody watched it because the YouTube algorithm hated it. He just plays with such a fearlessness and an insistence on getting into the paint that makes him impossible to take away. He attacks Gobert in a way that you just don't see people attack Gobert. And it's sometimes going into his body. Sometimes it's saying, okay, I'll just take this eight-foot floater that you can't fully take away. And he just will not back down and will not disappear and willed that team back into game two. Like, they are not going to allow 140 points again, obviously, in this series. It was only the second time it happened all year because the Jazz were clicking on all cylinders. They kept knocking down shots. And for a team like Memphis that is defined by their defense, when they can go out there and gun with Utah offensively, even at a loss, that is remarkable. And that was 100% about John Morant. They made seven threes. Jaw had made two threes, and they scored 129 points, and he had 47 of them. The man is special, and I think that this has been such a remarkable redemption of what was kind of a disappointing year for him. I mean, he didn't get better and struggled with efficiency, struggled with the shot for so much of the year, and it felt kind of like rookie year 2.0, but obviously that's disappointing because you want a guy to take that leap second time around. But these playoffs have just been a reminder of how remarkable he is as an athlete, as a playmaker for others, as a finisher around the rim, and as a competitor, because that's what's so remarkable. Again, he just will not go away and has challenged this Utah team in a way that I did not think was possible, but in a way that I now think is going to be fascinating to watch develop and see if he can continue to produce, obviously not 47 a game, but 30 a game for the rest of this series, because he's going to take enough shots to do it, and he's going to get to his spots. You can't take that away from him. So I, I have to go with Ja. Not that tough for me. I don't know if you saw this recently. Uh, Max Kellerman, uh, you know, great takes all the time. He came out and said that um, <laughs> he would take John ja Morant uh, over Jason Tatum uh, recently. And, like, obviously, I think that's really stupid. But do you think there's any merit to maybe not that take because I know how high we're both on Jason Tatum. Do you think Ja has cracked a superstar threshold that, uh, you know, where we previously didn't think he was before uh, after this game? Not necessarily, because I think that this is what I was saying way back when, when we had that conversation about who do you want for a play-in game, Jaw or DeRozan. 
which was a weirdly specific conversation, but one we had. And I said Ja because in these big spots, he can force himself onto the game in a way that other people can't. And it's not like Russ, where you have the peril of him taking 15 jump shots in a game and it's a bunch of bad threes and tough mid-range pull-ups. He's getting downhill and he's either shooting a floater or he's getting all the way to the bucket. And if he's not shooting, he's collapsing the defense and creating a shot for somebody else. So that's a special ability. He's not on Tatum's tier, in my opinion, and we can't just write off some of his deficiencies, that being really just the lack of a pull-up jumper, keeping people honest that way. But when he's this explosive and he changes pace this well too, and he can do this against the best paint defender of the last decade, obviously you're looking at a guy with star talent who is playing right now at a star level. So... Let's keep it moving now to each of our custom award for this series. What is that for you, Logan, and who is the recipient? Um, this award I'm actually giving to the entire Memphis team, Carson. Uh, also, I don't know if you guys heard on, on today's podcast, Carson did a video on the Grizzlies. Go check that mess out. You're kidding. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, advertisements uh, all episode long. Um, I'm giving the weirdest playoff team ever award uh, to the Memphis Grizzlies. <laughs> and like I said, you can uh, check out all the un- uh, the uniqueness of this team uh, on YouTube, uh, on Carson's YouTube video. I don't know if I mentioned that before. Um, <laughs> I, just, I just think that Memphis is, this season has just been so interesting for, I mean, not only for them to reach the playoffs, but just the circumstances that they had to deal with. Uh, you're number one all season long, as you mentioned earlier, Carson Jaw. Uh, questions genuinely about his game. Is he improving? Uh, what is the deal with his jumper this season? And then your second best guy, Jaron Jackson Jr., is a complete non-factor this season. He's been a complete non-factor in the series thus far. They're resilient. Um, they're absolute dogs. And uh, like the title of your video, they're fearless. It's It doesn't make any sense that a roster this young, uh, this short on, I won't say talent because they are a talented group, but this young, this talented to reach here. And again, I don't think they're going to make a run genuinely at this one seed and make this a... Uh, I don't think they're going to win this series, but for just to ha- uh, just for this to be so competitive through two games is really impressive, and for them to reach this spot, to have, have to gone through the play-in to deal with all of these issues all season long, I just think Memphis is such a weird playoff team. I mean, you know, I mean, just look at the guys getting minutes in this rotation. You know, Grayson Allen, uh, DeAnthony Melton, Desmond Bain, Xavier Tillman. It's just not typical of your normal playoff roster, and. You know, you call it what you want. It's weird, but it's really impressive. And uh, I genuinely think this Memphis team is one of the strangest playoff teams we've had in league history. Super unorthodox. I mean, they're the youngest playoff team in a decade, just to kick things off with that. But the way that they win is super unconventional. It's based on defensive effort and just punishing teams inside. Like, they do not have to make shots from the perimeter that consistently to win. They don't even have to take that many. And they haven't throughout this play-in and playoff run, which is also weird because when you think about who your best player is in John Morant, long-term, you probably want to just put sharpshooters around that guy because of what he can create for others. But they've been able to find success without that, and it really works. And like you said in this last game, in Game 2, when you're outscored by 33 uh, you know, behind the arc and you still keep this a 12-point game, and you score damn near 130 points, that's unheard of in in today's NBA. And it gives them a resilience 
and an ability to win without simply sitting behind the arc and saying, okay, we will win or lose this way and we will live and die by the three as so many teams do. They don't have to do that and they will force themselves on the game. And I think that it's impressive and I think it's a reason that they have been able to grind out some of these tough wins in playoff basketball. And I think it's a reason that they are posing more of a threat to the Jazz than certainly I thought. And they're not going to beat the Jazz. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. The Jazz are just a well-oiled machine and... I still don't think get enough credit for how great they really are, but the Grizzlies are absolutely going to make this fun and interesting, and I would be 0% surprised if they won another game, which I did not expect to be feeling that way coming into this series. I'll give my last award here to an ex-Grizzly who now plays for the Jazz. I'm giving the Maestro Award to Mike Conley because Conley was an all-star this year. He didn't deserve to be, let's be honest, but this has been some of the best basketball he's played all year and damn near in his career over these first couple games. He is just dissecting the Grizzlies out of the pick and roll. He is manipulating jaw like crazy, getting him on his back hip, and then it's just run into an easy floater or throw a, a snazzy bounce pass to Rudy off the roll, dot up a shooter. He is just so unbothered, so comfortable playing at his own pace and has really been the primary perimeter creator for them through two games. I mean, obviously, Donnie wasn't even out there in game one, and Donnie may have outscored Conley in game two, but I think Conley was far more commanding of the game as a whole with the 20 points and 15 assists. And so he has been phenomenal. And the reason I call it the Maestro Award is just the calmness and the really surgical nature of it. Like, he's just picking them apart like it's nothing, and that's been really impressive. And I will also give an honorable mention award here to the Utah Jazz. It's the Utah Jazz Award for playing like the Utah Jazz because <laughs> they have five guys scoring 15-plus a game. They have six guys scoring 12-plus a game. They have nine guys scoring seven-plus a game. Just the ultimate team effort, and that's why they are so dominant, so elite, and so unstoppable is they just do not go away because they have so many guys who are such high-level contributors. But this has been a lot of fun thus far. Any final thoughts on this series before we move on? Yeah, I hate that the simple alliteration of saying the Utah Jazz Award twice got me cracking up laughing. I mean, it's pretty hilarious. It's probably going to be in my next comedy special, which you can catch on our YouTube channel along with my <laughs> Grizzlies video. All right, let's move on to what has been the blockbuster First-round series thus far, Lakers-Suns. Obviously, the Lakers took a 2-1 advantage last night in what was another grind of a game. Who is the MVP of this series to you thus far? I mean, I think that it's really between two guys. Uh, I'm going to give it to Anthony Davis. I mean, and he's been the reason and the driving force behind these last two wins for the Lakers. It's a boring pick, and I hate going with the boring one, but it's he's been the most impactful player because he's looked completely different than he did in that first game. He has been aggressive. He's been cutting hard. He's been rolling with a purpose. And that's literally all that the Lakers need. I They just need another interior presence. And that's what is so frustrating about, I guess, rooting against the Lakers, man. Is it just, maybe the MVP isn't Anthony Davis. Maybe it's LeBron, actually. LeBron's never a bad pick. It's just every possession down it's so frustrating that LeBron looks like you want to talk about Mike Conley being a maestro LeBron is the puppet master I mean he just sits there and he knows exactly where the defense is going to move and all of the guys around him Caruso Kuzma they've all been made such smart basketball players and know exactly where to move to get these open shots and if they don't LeBron is literally directing traffic like a crossing guard out there telling them where to go to get these looks it's it's frustrating. Um, just that LeBron's so damn smart, man. And um, 
I'm going with AD uh, just because I think that's been the real difference maker. LeBron's been able to dot him up inside, and we've seen him catch so many lobs uh, in these last few games. I'm not going to let him off the hook for that one uh, airballed three at the uh, towards the end of the second quarter. Uh, you deserve to wear that AD, but um, no, it's been Anthony Davis. He has been the biggest difference maker. DeAndre Ayton has affected him a little bit um, in these last two games, but it hasn't been enough. When you can get those switches onto Jay Crowd or onto these other guys inside, AD just bullies him, and uh, he's been the biggest mismatch so far. Game three and what we have seen from AD and LeBron thus far has made me very glad that I picked the Lakers and made a bet on something that we hadn't seen fully realized yet because this is now looking like the team that I picked to win the title and the team that won the title last year. And AD shifting gears and dominating has been phenomenal. And there is one number to me that stands out above all else from AD's last two games. 35 free throw attempts. Oh, I just love to hear that. Because when you think about any great AD game, yeah, maybe it's not the prettiest, but he gets the line like 20 times. And in game one, obviously, he did not have that mentality. He was not rolling hard. He was so content to settle for pull-ups and not get to the line at all. And now, there's so much more pick and roll where, as you mentioned, they are simplifying the game for him. It's not all back to the basket where he's not truly elite. He's doing actual big man stuff. And even when he does take those shots that aren't in the restricted area, and some of them are still tough, it feels like it's more floater stuff. It's less of those tough fadeaways. And so... I just think he is 100% trending in the right direction, has reminded us why he's arguably a top five guy in basketball, even though there are so many more shiny offensive talents because he can be impossible to take away when he is this aggressive. And then obviously defensively, who he has been locked in and had a couple of just spectacular highlights in that game three, the chase down on book and then the game winning swat on Aiden, or maybe that was game two. I'm getting the mix up in my head now, but either way, just outstanding stuff from him. And you mentioned LeBron too. He just looks like the best player in the world again. And that has been such a relief to see after games one and two. He was just so content to settle. And in that playing game against the Warriors first half, he just was not asserting himself on the game. Game three was the most confident I've been in the LA title pick in a long time because he was just exploding. And he was spinning out with his back to guys and just getting to the bucket and imposing himself on that game in the way that LeBron James does and in a way that we haven't seen LeBron do as much as of late. Because when they won game two, yeah, it was fun, but it was a jump shooting clinic from LeBron. And he didn't have that same just dominance factor. And in game three, it was LeBron James being LeBron James. So those two both have been outstanding. But I'm going to go a little zany for my MVP pick. I'm going to go with Dennis Schroeder. Because obviously, they do not get in this spot without LeBron and AD. But when I'm thinking most valuable, sometimes I just want to highlight a key guy. And I think that Schroeder along with LeBron and AD, who have begun to play at the level that they need to for LA to win the title, Schroeder is now at the level that he needs to be at for LA to win the title because they have needed that third difference maker all year long. It's what Rondo was last year, and it's what Schroeder theoretically should have been able to do at a much higher level this time around. And in this series, he's doing it. He's putting up 19 a game on 56% shooting, and he just keeps getting downhill. I love the resilience and the insistence on getting downhill and not settling for bad jumpers. He shot the ball pretty well from three thus far, four of 10 from deep, but he's not focused on it. He's getting to the bucket and he's getting to the line because he is so, so explosive. I mean, his first step is so quick that he doesn't have to beat around the bush and try to do anything else. And this is the guy who I've believed could be there all along. He has now arrived and that makes the Lakers that much scarier. And it's just Every box is starting to get checked, man. AD has flipped the switch. LeBron is himself. Schroeder is producing consistently. Now, once they can shoot better than 27.5% from three, which is what they are in this series, which just highlights how insane it is that they're up 2-1, and 
once they start playing 80 at the five more and in all big minutes, I think that this team should be feeling shiny, and I think that they should feel like they can and probably should beat anybody. And so absolutely, AD has been more important, LeBron has been more important, but Schroeder has been what we hoped he could be and what he needs to be for the Lakers to ultimately run through these playoffs and win the whole thing. And that has been super encouraging. Yeah, I completely agree. And after game three, um, I'm in the same boat. I feel like an absolute buffoon for not taking the Lakers to win this <laughs> title. Um, they just they just look like a championship team, and I can't really... I, I don't know, it's weird. It's You want to talk about the jump shooting coming along as well, but that's the thing about the Lakers, man. When they can hold, in which they've done to the Suns, when they can hold you to damn near 100 points every night, which again, in three consecutive games, holding the Suns to under, under 102 points in every single one of them is crazy impressive. Granted, obviously, CP's dealing with his injury, but... When they can stop you on that end and then, like the Grizzlies, just go get a two-on-command in the paint by bullying you with LeBron or AD, they're a hard team to stop. And when LeBron is back orchestrating the way he is, um, I don't see any other team getting out of the West. And, yeah, I just feel dumb for not picking them to win at all, man. Well, I will say this is kind of a favorable matchup for them just because as far as true contenders go, the Suns have less firepower than a Utah the Clippers, if they were somehow able to get to that point, which is not looking like it's going to happen right now. Certainly the Nets. Like, those teams just have more shooting, and that's the thing. You can contain the Suns when you play this level of defense. Can they contain the Brooklyn Nets? That remains to be seen, and that would just be such a fascinating stylistic contrast. I don't think you could have two contenders who play more differently than those two teams in today's NBA. But absolutely, they are looking like a title-caliber team, and this has been what we've been waiting for. And it is here, and it is really impressive and I think they're starting to run away with this thing. Of course, CP not being himself is such a bummer. But I also, I don't know how that would have changed this series. It's a hypothetical that's interesting, but we're not going to see Chris Paul as himself. Let's move on to your second award here. Who does it go to? So I'm hoping I'm stealing your thunder with this one. Um, this is my official vocal apology uh, award. Yeah, I was wrong, bruh. I was wrong. I shouldn't have bullied you on the pod all year long about liking this campaign, guy. Um, 13-5 and five on 41-47, 100 shooting splits so far in the series. He hit those three big late threes to keep him in the game um, last time out. And with Chris Paul's shoulder uh, you know, still bothering him, obviously hindering him on the court, they need campaign. The Suns need campaign to win this, to win this series. It's It's weird that it's weird that we've come to this point and you've been on campaign all along, but I think it gives them a lot of I think it gives a lot of promise to this son's second unit and without CP, uh, him knocking down those big shots. They're gonna need a lot more of it in the rest of this series, a lot more of it because uh, honestly, them not playing Chris Paul in favor of campaign, even with the shoulder injury, still is a little it scares me a little bit. Just that they would, you know, not even give a CP those minutes uh, in crunch time, but uh, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Go Suns. Go campaign. Go D book. Um, they need them, and uh, I trust them a little more, man. I was wrong. Yeah, it's tough with CP because there was that stretch in Game Three where he was getting to his spots in the mid range, and he kind of looked like himself, but he just can't get the ball to the hoop. It seems from further than like 15 feet out, and it's tough to keep a defense honest that way. But at the same time, if anybody can do it, it's the mid range maestro that is Chris Paul. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I agree that he was getting to his spots all right, but there's a major hitch in that jumper, man, where he's putting it up. 
I agree. I thought that there was like two shots in the first half where it looked normal, and then there was one in the second half where it was just like, ugh, that does not look good at all. And the indications are just that he's not going to be himself in this series. But thank you, Logan, for acknowledging the silky smooth, shifty master that is campaign. The playmaking is electric. The perimeter shot making, electric. Change in pace, quickness. He's got it all. I think was a top 10 six man of the year candidate this year. Maybe even better than that. I, there's not many players I want on my team over campaign. Maybe four or five. Him versus Luca would be a conversation. The dude is electric. And thank you for apologizing because every time I came on this podcast and I was mocked and I will be mocked no longer because that dude is amazing and it blows my mind that he was a fringe NBA guy until this year. Blows my mind. Okay. I'm going to give my second award to another Phoenix guy who has been as impressive, if not more impressive in this series. And that is DeAndre Ayton, who will be the recipient of the Absolute Hero Award because what he is doing right now is something I did not expect he could do, and it has been a valiant effort each and every game. I mean, he has not had a single game that has been less than remarkably impressive, putting up 22 a game on 82% from the field, 14 offensive boards, and I love those last two stats because he's staying within himself. He's finding a way to be a consistently imposing force without thinking, okay, the way I do that is I take these bad post fades. I can't think of really one of those shots that he's taken this series. It's just he's on cleanup duty. He's doing it off the roll. He's putting up those little hooks, and he's being aggressive. And DeAndre Ayton being aggressive doesn't mean dunking on dudes like crazy because he's just not wired that way. He's still going for too many touch finishes, although he's making them, but he's attacking switches when he gets them. I mean, it's kind of funny. He had KCP on him, and he looked kind of nervous almost. He threw up a hook that was off the bank when it shouldn't have been, but he's attacking it. And He's eating up those boards, and he's catching lobs, and just is playing in a way that I did not expect him to ever, because I never thought he was the kind of guy who would kick into another gear when his team needs it. I kind of thought he's the guy who would shy away from the moment more than anything just because of the passivity and the inconsistency that we saw time and again this year, but it's been the exact opposite. And defensively, he obviously isn't having the same impact he had in Game 1, but he's still doing a much better job on AD than anybody else. I still think it's stupid that some possessions they put Crowder or Bridges on AD so Aiden can just patrol the paint. Just have Aiden on AD all the time. Don't overthink it there. But he's had his good moments. Last game, twice, he hung with Schroeder off a switch. Schroeder tried to blow by him. He couldn't. Aiden blocked a couple of those shots. But it's offensively that has been most impressive because I literally went out and said before these playoffs, if you are expecting DeAndre Aiden to score 20 points per game for a series, you will be disappointed, and here he is scoring 22 points per game in a way that has been highly efficient and, again, hasn't devolved into him trying to be a ballerina, super-skilled guy. He's playing like a big man, and he's playing great. And what sucks, though, Carson, I, I agree. I think Aiden is the second guy out of the group to highlight um, with how impressive he's been this series. The frustrating thing is he's been excellent on the defensive end. I just think the Phoenix Suns are short one guy similar to him in size and stature on the inside to help protect the paint from really being competitive in this series. Because like you said, uh, when Phoenix will choose those possessions where they put Jay or Bridges on uh, AD, they get bullied. When they get those switches, they get bullied inside. And what really makes me mad is when you're running Frank Kaminsky out there and Andre Drummond is just bodying him. Why is he on the floor? Like, I'd rather... Where's Tyson Chandler these days, man? Put him out on the floor over Kaminsky. I know he can still protect the rim. I mean, it, I just, I'm mad that DeAndre Ayton can't be out there 48 minutes a night. Mm -hmm. 
but he has been playing a ton of minutes. I mean, he's doing everything he can. And it's just unfortunate because right now, he has to operate as a second offensive guy without actually creating his own shot because they don't have their second best offensive player. They don't have the guy who could stick a dagger into your heart in the last five minutes of a game, time after time after time. And you just can't say that doesn't matter. And you can't say that hasn't changed this series because the Suns just don't have enough offensively unless Book is transcendent and the guys around him are knocking down shots. And in game three, we didn't see either of those things really happen. Yeah, and I do want to give credit to Book, though, with the way that the Lakers have been playing him defensively. I mean, I know he only shot 6-19 of from the field last game, but for him to make some of these shots, I mean, three guys all collapsing and closing in on you at the same time every time you get to the elbow, it's it's impressive that he's still able to get those shots off and knock down some of them, but um, I think we're going to have to see Book be a Chris Paul-like playmaking engine uh, if the Suns want to get it back into this series. And that's what we saw in game one. I mean, every double he was dissecting. And I just hope people don't distort what's happening here because what is being tasked of book right now is superhuman. Like, you cannot expect anybody to beat the Lakers, not single-handedly, obviously, because the Suns have so many role guys, but as by so far the driving offensive engine, like, CP couldn't do this if Book wasn't himself. So I just don't want people to turn that into a criticism of him because they're not really paying attention and they haven't been paying attention to him for too long because he is that special and that great. But I think that this is Lakers and six probably. I initially predicted seven. I don't think it's going all the way there at this point. When the Lakers can win shooting this poorly, dude, like they're never going to shoot well, but they're going to shoot 35, 36% on average. And when they do that, and they've already won two of three, shooting 27.5%, and CP can't take over games in late stretches, I just think it's kind of over. So let's move on to a series that involves your NBA title pick, Logan, the Denver Nuggets. Next thing we knew, you retracted it. You were on the Blazers train. The Nugs went out and won one last night to spite you, and now they're up 2-1. I'm interested in sort of catching your thoughts on if you've gone back to the Denver side of things here, but first of all, let's talk about the MVP and this may be a double meaning in this one, MVP of this series and of the season. For me, it is. Spoiler. But who is your most valuable guy in this series thus far? Uh, well, first, I want to say, dude, I don't even know about this series, bruh. I'm so <laughs> I'm so back and forth. Um, I also do, while we're on the apology train here, I'll issue my apology to Austin Rivers. I was calling for the dude's head after game one. I said, you know, it gives Marcus Howard some minutes. Told you. I'm a dude, huge just... Austin Rivers guy, dude. Oh, yeah, you've liked him since his high school mixtape, huh? Okay, how could you not, dude? That was unbelievable, what he was doing to those kids. Almost criminal. Um, I was wrong about you, Austin. I'm sorry, bro. Uh, my MVP for this series so far uh, is Aaron Gordon. You know, I think you go with Jokic. It's a good pick. Obviously, I think you have to go Jokic or Lillard in this um, if you're going after genuine MVP. They're the two best players on the floor. I'm going to go with Aaron Gordon, and I know it's kind of tired and worn out by now with what he's been doing on the defensive end, but it's been genuinely impressive. Uh, through three games, uh, he's holding uh, opponents to near uh, 12% under their average field goal percentage. Um, he's been elite on that end, and I mean, just for him to... Uh, for one, the swagger, the confidence in yourself to say, look, uh, Coach Malone, put me on Dame. That's big time. I mean, you're a confident guy in your abilities, but also he's just... I think Aaron Gordon could defend damn near anybody in the league. I mean, if, if you can go out there and play on the shiftiest guy, because you'll see, you know, in these possessions where Jokic will try to come up, and, like, Dame just blows by him immediately, and Jokic is just 
I don't know, he looks like a little fat kid trying to chase the ice cream truck, and he just doesn't get back there. He's never going to. Dame burns him on those. Aaron's not like that. He, he can chase him down. He can mostly stay in front of him. I just think uh, uh, for this series, obviously he has to lock up Dame to make this competitive. He's got all the physical tools to do it, but if he can guard Dame, um, it gives me confidence through, if they get through this round, that you can put Aaron Gordon on the opposing team's best player and have a modicum of confidence that he's going to do a really good job on them. And, uh, I mean, he's been imperative thus far in the series on the defensive end, as do, I think, a lot of other guys deserve credit. I don't want to just dismiss the team effort that goes on here. Uh, Compazzo has been tremendous. It's so frustrating, bro. Compazzo tries so hard, and it doesn't matter sometimes because he's just so small, and Norman Powell will blow by him and jam on him, or Damian Lillard will hit something in his mouth. But it's been a team effort. I think Gordon is leading that charge, though, and... uh, it makes me think they have a, not a defensive superstar, but a definite stalwart for the rest of these playoffs. First of all, Faku should be first team all rookie. All right, you and I were the couple guys driving that train. It's not going to happen, but it should. I don't know how you could see what he's doing in these playoffs. Putting up 10, 5, and 6, two steals and a block per game through three. And as you mentioned it, just exerting so much effort in every phase of the game and say that guy is less valuable to winning right now than I don't know. Emmanuel quickly, and that's another guy who's in a playoff context, but like so many of these rookies just can't actually compete on this level like Faku can right now. Another thing, just to touch on something that you mentioned, Dame has to be the single worst matchup for Jokic out of the pick and roll in basketball because like there are a lot of matchups in which Jokic can hang just with his feet and being positionally sound, knowing where to be. It really is hands more than his feet, actually. And just, yeah, kind of outsmarting people. But with Dame, it's just a nightmare because obviously he has to get pulled out to 30-something feet. And then you mentioned it. Sometimes it just becomes a literal foot race because Dame doesn't have to pretend to do anything other than book it to the bucket. And Jokic just cannot hang with him there. So that's been tough. But Gordon has been phenomenal. There was a little stretch in Game 3 where he was exerting himself offensively too, was just dialed in and trying to get buckets on his own, which I liked. I mean, you don't want to see too much of primary ball handling Aaron Gordon, but in a series where they are down so many playmakers, I like to see guys just being confident and not questioning themselves. So he has been really good, no question. I do want to mention, uh, (laughs) as you talk about Dame bursting to the bucket, I never thought I'd see Faku as a help defender, but damn it, is it it intriguing every time he does. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Dame is a problem, problem for this team, no question. I mean, he'd be a problem for any team, but he has been outstanding. But my MVP is the MVP, and that is Nikola Jokic, putting up 36 a game on 58% from the field, 50% from three. What he is doing is a absolute joke right now. He is getting to his spots so easily, so effortlessly. And game three was killing Portland off the roll and then just nailing those tough finishes, those little floaters where he doesn't have to go all the way downhill. He's been killing them off the pop all series. And what I liked, at least from Portland, was that they started trying to answer this question in a different way. They tried switching Rocco onto him at the end. That didn't go too well. But there was a couple possessions where they doubled him with Rocco, and I thought that that was maybe their best solution. Because obviously, you don't want to double Jokic all that much because... He gets that much better when you're playing four on three and he can see everything and make every pass in the book. But I think there are situations in which you just have to blitz him and you have to get as many arms in his face and around that ball as you possibly can. Like handoff situations, blitz Jokic. Anywhere that a second offensive player is close enough to him that you can easily send two guys without getting punished, 
that badly, you have to do it because you can't single cover him. You can't single cover him with Nurk. You can't single cover him with Rocco. But Rocco is so good as a help guy with those 7-2 arms with just great hands, great anticipation, that you can at least make him uncomfortable in that way. Because, like, yeah, Jokic can make good decisions, better decisions than almost anybody else, but it sucks having that many hands in your face and trying to get on the ball. There was even a late possession where they forced a tie-up doing that, basically. So I think that's what you have to do because... (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen Jokic score this effortlessly. Like, he hasn't gone under 34 in any of these three games, and they've limited his playmaking to an extent, but not really. Like, you're not taking it away, and he's just cooking you one-on-one time after time after time, off the roll, off the pop, out of the post. This is just historic stuff that he's doing. I mean, carrying this team to right now an offensive rating of 126 in this series with Austin Rivers as their leading scorer out of the backcourt— You just got to be kidding me, man. Shout out Austin, though. I mean, that was a remarkable performance last game. But I don't think that we acknowledge enough how insane this is, Logan. They do not have Jamal Murray. They do not have Will Barton. They do not have P.J. Dozier. And they are up 2-1 on a team with Dame, C.J., Norm, Nurk, Rocco. Like, I am a massive fan of the Nuggets role, guys. I mean, I think that they all do their job at a really high level. And if they weren't, then the Nuggets couldn't be here because... You can't have literally only one guy playing well for your team and win a playoff series, but their roles are so simplified and they're still able to win because they have a guy who can do everything as well as anybody on the planet. Jokic continues to make his case for best offensive player in the world and continues to affirm how offensive it was for anybody else to consider another player for MVP because this man is doing stuff that just nobody else in basketball can. I mean, it's like, it's different obviously, but LeBron is the only guy I can think of who could carry a team like this to this level of success. How many Blazers guys behind Dame are you taking before you get to the Nuggets second guy? Well, obviously CJ. <sighs> Norm versus MPJ is so weird because Norm can do so much more, but literally just because of MPJ's shot, he is so lethal. But I still think that I would take Norm. And then I'm taking MPJ. And then, like, Gordon and Nurk are in a similar tier. I mean, Gordon and MPJ are honestly in a similar tier to me as far as all-around value goes. But offensive explosiveness is just not close. And, I mean, that is the thing we always have to remember is the Blazers are so bad defensively. And that's why the Nuggets are able to hang out with them in this series and actually have a leg up on them in part. But this isn't possible without Jokic as your best player. And that's why he just has to be the MVP to me. What's your second award from this series? So maybe I'm overestimating uh, his lack of awareness uh, because he's had the best plus-minus of any Nuggets starter in all three games so far. Uh, I'm giving the clueless buffoon award uh, to Michael Porter Jr. And it's just like, I don't know, bro. We've been criticizing him all year for this lack of basketball IQ, lack of awareness, and possession after possession. Oh, he lets a guy cut right by him. Oh, he doesn't close out on a shooter. Oh, look, another guy flies by Michael Porter Jr. to the basket, and they throw inside. its I don't know how many times you can let yourself get burnt on defense or on a switch or on a read out of a pick and roll. He's a horrible defender, and it's not like he doesn't have the physical tools to be a good one. You're 6'10", you're decently agile, you're strong. Give some effort, MPJ. its He's just... He has no awareness on the defensive end, and it has been it's been exposed here against the Blazers even more, man. It's so frustrating possession after possession watching MPJ try to play defense. 
And that's another thing that just speaks to how remarkable Jokic is. Not about MPJ on the defensive end, but that he hasn't been great offensively in this series. I mean, game one, he was good, but they lost. Then game two, he was 18 on 5 of 13 shooting. Game three, he was 15 on 5 of 11. This has not been the 25-point-per-game MPJ that we saw on the home stretch of the year, and they're still winning. MPJ's hilarious, man. I mean, in some ways, just so much more talented than almost anybody else in basketball, and in so many other ways, so far behind the curve. See ball, shoot ball is the thing with MPJ. <laughs> Some of the shots he takes are just so funny. And you know what? He makes more of them than basically anybody else could. But yeah, he is so far to go to be like a real star level player who you can really rely on as a second guy. And I just don't think people talk about that enough, how far he really does have to go. But maybe he could get there someday. He's not there yet. Clueless buffoon maybe. Actually, you know what? I think it's relatively fitting. Like clueless buffoon who is also insanely talented is probably the way that I would put it. But I'm going to go to Portland for my second award. It is the Formidable Opponent Award, which goes to, of course, Damian Lillard. I mean, he may have the MVP opposite him. He happens to be Peyton T. Gallagher's MVP, so he has that award to his name in Damian Lillard. But man, what a transcendent offensive talent, dude. 38-9 and nine on 43% from three, playing 41 minutes a game. I mean, just to put into perspective the load that he is taking on for this team right now, he's attempting 15 threes a game and has taken seven shots from 30-plus feet. And I'm not sure that we've ever seen him ball like this in a playoff situation and just assert himself on the game to this level and just pulls the defense so far out and can shoot a step back in any moment's notice. And you can double him and he can still get that step back off and just... It's remarkable what he's doing right now. I think he pulls confidently from distance more than Steph. Like, from 30-plus feet or from 28-plus feet, he is just so willing to take that shot at all times. And what that does to a defense, forcing it to keep them honest, is so, so valuable. And really, this is just... This entire series is, to me, a demonstration of how remarkable he and Jokic both are. Neither of them has scored under 34 points. They both have very flawed teams around them in their own ways. Obviously, the Blazers on the defensive end, the Nuggets on the offensive end. And here they are dominating and competing in what has been a really, really fun series. But Dame has been a formidable opponent. I mean, the fact that he's been the second best player in this series offensively is ludicrous. And that's about the guy opposite him. But he has been outstanding and thrilling to watch yeah the big thing that stuck to me uh stuck out to me about game three too man dame puts up all those points only takes two free throws i mean just uncharacteristic i mean he's you know normally a guy that gets to the uh you know line eight to ten times a game for the blazers mm -hmm. to be in that without that you know uh those consistent opportunities it's just rare for a uh for a blazers game and he was 2 of 10 from 3 at one point and then made a couple of big ones down the stretch. But yeah, he is relying on just the sheer perimeter shot making more than almost ever before. But he has been an utter assassin with it. Again, 15 threes a game is what he's attempting. That is just ludicrous. Okay, let's move on to the last series out west. Clippers, Mavs, what is your MVP from this one? So, I mean, obviously, I, I think I have to go with Luka Doncic as my MVP. And I, I hate going with these boring ones, but... Demf is, I, I genuinely, like, I, I genuinely believe this when I say it. I think he's the most unguardable basketball player I've ever watched. I don't think, you can't guard him. He's, that step back has been unreal this series. Um, Luke is one of the greatest basketball players I've ever watched. Um, 
I don't think I can say it enough. Just go watch either of these two games. Um, that's kind of boring. Uh, the other guy I'll give it to, um, I've really liked what I've seen out of Maxi Kleber so far. Uh, just like his, I don't know, man. I didn't, I didn't think Kleber was anything except like a like a Nicolo Melli type who also got minutes in this game. You know, he shoots a little bit. He gives effort on defense, but I didn't think of him as anything else. Having watching him matched up with Kawhi on the defensive end and uh, really forcing him to put up tough shots, uh, taking Kawhi inside on the other end, putting up some floaters, getting inside on him, uh, I've been really impressed. Um, I don't think he's been the second best player for the Mavs so far. I think Tim Hardaway Jr. was better um, in Game Two. I think Dorian Finney-Smith uh, was better in Game One, but Cleveland uh, was really good in Game Two. He's really efficient and uh, really physical. I think my obvious MVP pick is Luca, but shout out Maxi. First of all, comparing Maxi to Nicolo Melli is very, very offensive to Maxi Kleba. I mean, Nicolo is up there with Kyle Anderson for slowest player in the NBA. Maxi is a dog on defense. Like, he completely punches above his weight there, and he did in last year's playoffs, and he is again, like, just because of effort. And I don't know, he has some physical tools there, I guess, but absolutely a plus defender. He has been good, but. The MVP is Luka Doncic. I mean, I have a second MVP option here as well, but 35, eight and a half and nine through two games. It's just been one of the most remarkable offensive displays I have ever seen. The skilled shot making. I mean, he's seven of 11 on fadeaways. He's seven of 13 on step back threes. Those are shots you cannot take away if you are single covering a guy. Like that is just impossible. He can get those off in any moment, in any context. And one of my favorite parts about this is just what he's doing for mid-range and how sensational that is. Like, as I mentioned, the fadeaways and the little pull-ups and the stop and pops from that range because that's a new element to his game this year. And it's another thing that just takes him up a level. And we are seeing why in, in the playoffs because those are the kind of shots you need to be able to get off and make it a high level. And he is doing it time and again. And he can keep adding stuff. My expectation is that he becomes the greatest offensive player ever. He's in his third year, Logan. We have never seen this. And I don't know when the next time we'll see it again is this combination of scoring and playmaking all three levels where it doesn't matter. You can throw the best perimeter defender of the last decade at him and he is still going to make that guy look like a fool. It is absolutely riveting and uh, obviously he has been the MVP of this series. I will say though, a massive reason that the Mavs are up 2-0 in this series beyond Luka is just their pure shooting from beyond the arc. They are 50% from three, and that to me has to be the other MVP because this series is a couple teams that are so dependent on how they shoot from beyond that arc, and that's what's going to determine this in a lot of ways. THJ has been the best of the bunch, 11 of 17 from deep, and is doing it in such a fun way, off the catch, off screens and tight windows, off of his own creation, just the windows and distance he can shoot from is so remarkable. And that's one of my favorite things about him is he's one of those guys who will confidently pull from 28 if that's where he catches the ball and will make them. Because, you know, sometimes some guys, they got to take that step in or whatever, or they decide, oh, I'm too far out. Not THJ, man. He is just a laser beam from back there. And I can't believe that I was ever an anti-THJ guy when he was in New York. I really thought he's just a volume shooter. And putting him in a winning situation, we knew this last year, but it's great to see it on the playoff stage as well he's just so easy to play alongside a guy like Luca because he strikes so quickly and he's been phenomenal. This whole team has been phenomenal shooting the ball. That's why they're up above all else. Let's go to your second award. Who do you have that going to? Uh, it's pretty simple. It's overarching. Uh, it's a nice game plan award. I'm giving that to Ty Lue. <laughs> like, I mean, I just don't get how you can get, how you can trot up the floor 
both these games and continuously get burnt by Luka. And I'm not saying it's easy. Again, I just said Luka's the most unguardable player I think I've ever seen. You can't defend him, but how many times can you let Zubac switch on to him? How many times can you keep trotting out Pat Bev and, you know, Marcus Morris expecting them to be genuine difference makers? Like, give some minutes, give more minutes to Reggie. Give more minutes to Luke. Give more minutes to Serge. Give more minutes to Batum. On top of that, I think there is a best route for the Clippers to defend Luka Doncic. It's going to be hard. It's going to require a lot of effort. But you can't just keep trotting out Paul George and Zubac in that pick and roll and expecting it to work. I think what you have to do is you put Paul George on... I think you still have to keep Paul George on Luka, but you put Kawhi on one of the bigs. And in that pick and roll scenario, you just let him switch all game long. And like... Yeah, it's going to suck, but Kawhi's one of the greatest defenders of all time. He can guard those bigs. He can box them out. He can play physical. He was doing that with Kleber, even though he's undersized by him. You cannot let yourself continuously get burnt out of that pick and roll. And the only way I see that happening is putting your two best defenders every possession to defend it, where they are going to get run off the court and maybe even get swept. I mean, I didn't expect to say that when you have two players, the caliber of Kawhi and PG, but this has been a horrible, horrible rotation and a horrible game plan by uh, Ty Lu so far in this series. No, I 100% agree with that because the majority of Dallas minutes, KP is basically the five. Kawhi could guard KP no problem, dude. No problem. There is not a single way in which KP can abuse Kawhi because the only thing he does over smaller guys is shoot over them and Kawhi happens to have crazy long arms and isn't actually small. So, I agree with you. I mean, we can go and look for every solution. I said on the last episode, I thought that they should start trapping Luke at half court in any big situation, whenever they're down, whenever they're in the fourth quarter. I still kind of believe in that, but they did double him on the last possession of the last game. And then he found, I think it was THJ who knocked down the winning three or not the winning three, but the icing three. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, do not let him get eaten close to the arc with the ball still in his hands because once he's there yeah he can dissect you if you pick him up at 40 feet he cannot do anything from there I don't think that they'll do it though and I think that they'll probably go down because maybe they're not going to take a risk and they're not really going to change things up I am giving the Achilles heel award to the Clippers supporting cast in general I think that Ty Lue has been poor as you mentioned but just so many of the shortcomings that we expected to potentially be the downfall of this team have been the downfall of this team. Their third leading scorer is putting up 10 a game, and Kawhi and PG have been great offensively, but they don't have that third difference maker. They're only shooting 33% from deep as a team. They cannot win like that. They are so predicated on those spot-up shooters just knocking them down time after time after time. It's not happening right now, and they have no counter. They are still lacking really impactful defenders, particularly on the interior. But as you mentioned, just guys are getting abused out of those switches. The fact that Pat Bev ever ends up on Luka is atrocious. I mean, those are the easiest buckets he's scored in his career. So hilarious that Pat Bev was all defense at one point. Like, I don't know, man. Versatility matters. And he cannot guard anybody bigger than 6'6". But they just have no answer there. And then some of the stuff rotation-wise... It's just weird to me, too, and this is more anti-Ty Lue stuff, I guess. I know Serge is coming off of an injury, and maybe it's a health thing, but he's only played 18 total minutes. I don't know. He's more switchable than Zubots. Like, maybe get him out there. Offensively, he's more versatile. Just try it. Try something. Terrence Mann has only played 15 minutes. Terrence Mann is another guy who's versatile, who can impact the game in multiple ways. Maybe throw him out there, because right now, the only thing I can see saving this Clippers team is these role guys shooting the lights out, and that's kind of always been true, but... 
They are not stopping the Mavs. The Mavs may cool down from beyond the arc. They are not going to prevent them from getting great looks, though. And so they have to respond on the other end by just shooting 45% from three. That's the way they get out of this. And by the way, that totally can happen. I mean, that is why, as weird as the Clippers have been all year long, I think you can argue that they have been considered a deserved contender because they're weird, but they happen to be one of the greatest shooting teams ever. That's how they could still win four out of five games here. But the pressure is on, man, and they got to do it now. And they don't have that third guy unless Rondo goes berserk who can actually impact the game himself outside of just knocking down open threes. Yeah, I think Rondo can, I mean, open up stuff for other guys on the offensive end, compete like Pat Bev does on the defensive end. I don't get why they're not playing Kennard, though. I mean, the struggles with shooting. Just put a laser out there, man. Well, the thing is, I think that they trust their shooting for the most part. And Kennard is so tough to play defensively here, but they misutilized him every single time they played him this year. And yeah, he could 100% be an actual creator. Like the dude is great out of the pick and roll. He's a really good passer. He's got a really nice floater game and he can shoot the hell out of the ball. That is absolutely the kind of guy who they need to play minutes. And they don't and they haven't and they won't because they're the Clippers and they are a cursed franchise. Do you think that they end up going down in this series? And if so, how many games do they take it? Yeah, um... I don't think they get swept. Um, I think there's a, I think there's a good chance, too, that they lose game three, but I don't think they get swept. Um, I'm going to pick this series to go six. I think it's competitive, but I'm going to stick with Dallas. I don't even want to make an official prediction because it's literally just going to come down to shooting, in my opinion. And I think the Clippers could shoot well enough. I think that they are going to fight back in this series. I mean, if they go down without a fight, shame on them. Kawhi is out of there. He made one of the worst decisions in NBA history leaving Toronto. I think that this probably goes seven in either way. I want to ask you then, if the Mavs get through, would you take them to beat the Jazz? Absolutely not. The Jazz have such a higher two-way ceiling. They have so many more impactful players. I think that this is a tough matchup for the Clippers, just like I thought the Clippers were going to be a tough matchup for the Jazz if they got to that second round. Like Some of this I do think is matchup stuff. Well, I want to ask. I mean, yeah, matchups matter, and I think that the Jazz do have a higher two-way ceiling, but... Does that matter in a single series when you have, when every possession you can count on getting a good look or a a tough shot by a really dominant tough shot maker in Luka Doncic? Like, are the Mavs just the, are the Mavs an anomaly? Like, I hate to be asking that after a few games here in the playoffs, but I don't know, man. If the Clippers don't have an answer for Luka, who does? Well, the Jazz have this guy named Rudy Gobert who can take away some of it. I mean, certainly not all of it because so much of what Luke is doing is that skilled perimeter mid-range shot making. I just think we're going to see the shooting calm down from the Mavs. And Utah has, again, so many different guys who can make good decisions, who can actively make plays instead of just, oh, Kawhi or PG swung me the ball, I shoot, I miss, or I make. Because that's what the Clippers are. And it's super, super weird. And the Jazz aren't like that. They play together. They play beautiful team basketball on both ends. And I just think they're better than the Clippers. And I really wish I had picked them in that second round series. I said, Logan, that I thought they were better than the Clippers. But I said, I think that this is just a tough matchup because Gobert can't impact the game as much. I'm getting ahead of myself here because we haven't even gotten out of this first round series. I do think the Clippers are going to have an answer. I don't know if they're going to have enough of an answer. And there's no question who the best player in this series has been. You asked me before the series if I would rather have Luka or Kawhi and PG. I said Kawhi and PG. 
I still would say Kawhi and PG, but right now it has been Luka, Luka, Luka. I'm going to go back for a second just to the last series because I want to get your official opinion on Portland-Denver as well. Are you switching back to the Nuggets? Are you switched? Are you sticking with the Blazers? You were hoping I wouldn't ask, huh? Yes, I was hoping you were just going to brush it off and we were going to go over to the East. Okay, if you don't want to answer, we'll just stick with your latest prediction, which is the Blazers. It's a bad oh. one, though, because the Nuggets are going to win this series. Boy! Yeah. I think it I think it goes seven. I'm not going to say a team. Because if I come back here and say the Nuggets, I know Damian Lillard's going to go stupid and win game four. Yeah, Nuggets are winning this series in six. All right, I'm sticking with my initial prediction, and I'm going to be right about it. Let's move on to the East now. Where, again, not every series is quite as riveting. I mean, the fact that those are our four first-round matchups out West, every one of those series, every game basically has me on the edge of my seat. What a gift these playoffs have been. Sixers-Wizards is the 1-8 out East. Sixers are up 2-0. Had a much more convincing win in Game 1, or in Game 2 than they did in Game 1. Who is your MVP of this series thus far? I think there's a lot of guys you could go with. Um, ben Simmons, Embiid, Toby. Uh, the big three there has looked really good. I'm going to give it to Matisse Thibel. Um, still criminally underrated, I think, on the defensive end. But, I mean, what we've seen, even in the box score, man, uh, six steals, seven blocks through two games. Uh, he had five and four uh, in game two. He's just disruptive, man, on that end. And uh, he's made life hard for Beal. He's made life hard for Russ. Uh, Beal shoots one of six from behind the arc. Russ goes 0 of three. The entire Wizards roster makes two threes all game. And I don't want to just solely attribute that to Matisse Thibel. Obviously, the entire Sixers defense deserves credit for that. But uh, no, that was going to be a hot take. Oh, go ahead. Just say it. I won't tell anybody. Nobody's listening. I'm not, I'm not going to go hot take-ish. I will say, I think the gap between Thibel and Simmons as perimeter disruptors is closer than people than people recognize. No, no, no. Go the hot take. Go the hot no. take. Tease is probably a better defender than Ben Simmons. You can say that. I'm not going to. Okay, I will then. I think that they have the two best pure perimeter defenders in basketball, which is insane. And God, I just hope Tease can make 38% of his threes at some point because he could easily be, I don't know, a top 40, 50 guy in basketball, literally just like scoring 12 a game, knocking down open shots because... Just the length is different, man. Like the way that he affects jump shots, Simmons can't do that. Simmons cannot just wreck the the game on the perimeter like that. I mean, he's obviously phenomenal and his hands are incredible and all that, but Tease has been great. I'm going to say that there is no MVP of this series. The MVP is the Sixers just being too good. I couldn't pick one guy. I mean, Toby obviously was huge in game one. He's putting up 28 a game. Embiid is 26 a game on 61% from the field. Simmons is at 14, 12, and 12. They're just so much better. I mean, they have so many more impactful guys. And when their big three is playing like this, they are utterly phenomenal. And like I said after game one of this series, the Wizards played about as well as they could have in game one, and they still lost. In game two... We saw what the Wizards look like when they don't play their best, and it's nothing close to what the Sixers can do. There's just such a massive talent gap here that I don't even feel like I need to highlight one person who's been exceptional because it's not like one guy has been that exceptional. It's just their big three have been really good, and they're a way, way, way better team. Do you take objection well, to that? A little too boring? Well said. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. No MVP in this one. 
Who is the recipient of your second award in this series? It's funny that you say that. Um, I am giving this to uh, the Wizards' front office. This is the Yosemite Sam Award. Um, grab your sticks of dynamite and just blow the Wizards up, man. Um, they're like the magic, bruh. It, it's past time. Like, when, when Bradley Beal can shoot 50% from the field on this volume, I know he, he went one of six from deep. You score 95 points? It's... It's overtime. I have a feeling, a sneaking suspicion, because I know the Washington Wizards and Washington sports teams, they're probably going to, you know, they're going to have Russell around one more year. They're probably going to keep Beal. Maybe I should just change this to the free Bradley Beal Award. I I mean, just just let him go, please. It's been two years, Washington. You're not going to go get your lottery draft pick. Go. They're just, the Washington Wizards are putting off the inevitable every year. It's embarrassing, and now I like the signing when it happened, too. They've paid Bertans a stupid amount of money when he's been an unreliable shooter this year. Inconsistent. I don't want to say unreliable, but yeah, it's time. Blow it up, Washington. Well, the bad news is they're not going to because they're 100% going to play out Beal's contract next year. I would think, actually. Maybe they do make the smart move, and maybe I should really— Appreciate the fact that we are in a new era of Washington basketball post... Why can't I remember that guy's name? Ernie. Their 17-year president. Yeah, Ernie Grunfeld. Thank you. But, yeah, I mean, they still have Russ on the books for another two years. They still have Beal for the next year, and they're probably going to play that out because I do think the home stretch of this year was encouraging for them. But my award was literally the Poor Brad Award because he has been so phenomenal and has put on display yet again why he is one of the scoring talents of this generation, one of the absolute best, putting up 33 a game with two made threes in this series. I mean, that's what's so remarkable is he is just carving them up in the mid-range, just using that explosive quickness to get downhill. And it's sad because you watch him putting in so much effort, playing so well, and you know it just doesn't matter. Because as I said, game one, they played as well as they could as far as the role guys. Still didn't win. Game two, the rest of this team was one of 16 from three. You don't even have a prayer of winning a game shooting like that. And that's just hard to watch. They are so outclassed, so outmatched. Their third best player is some combination of Bertans, Rui, occasionally Daniel Gafford, occasionally Ish Smith. Like, it is a joke compared to what the Sixers are doing. And we knew that it would be. I thought that Brad and Russ could will them to one win. I still think that can't happen if Russ is himself, which hopefully he is. And by the way... Man, does it suck that Russ is the always always the guy who's getting screwed in these fan interactions. Like, what a bummer, dude. And look, I obviously am not a fan of his game on the court, but this is just ridiculous, the way that he gets treated. And that's a bummer. But they are outclassed in this series. They are going to lose in four or five. I'm very confident about that. Yeah, a lot of the fan interactions we've seen uh, have been just deplorable, man. Despicable. Yeah, you let people back in a stadium and... Uh, People can't handle themselves, apparently. I'm going to give one last award here. The Flash of the Future Award, all right? For the 14 minutes of Tyrese Maxey we saw in Game 2. 10 points. He was commanding the game. Just get into the bucket. The dude is going to be electric when that pull-up three really comes around and when he really understands the playmaking side of things. Bet on Kentucky guards, Logan. Bet on Kentucky guards time after time after time, and it will pay off, and he is going to be one of the better ones even out of that group, I believe. But, yeah, they're just outclassed as far as the Wizards, and this series is over after two games, in my opinion. 
We got another series that is over after two games, in my opinion. Nets Celtics, it was over before it even started. It was over before Jalen Brown even got hurt, but that certainly didn't help. But who was the MVP of this one in your eyes? Dude, it's sad. Like, I completely agree. I, I Personally, I think this series is, like, the most, maybe the most boring out of any of them. Maybe it's just yes. because it's Brooklyn. Um, I'd give it to, the boring answer here is KD. He's looked really good shooting the pill um, over these first two games. He gets his buckets, and the Nets are unstoppable. Um, the other guy I'd like to highlight, uh, not from the Nets, I think, only, solely because of the situation that he's in and uh, after Jalen Brown's injury. Marcus Smart, you know, shooting really well from behind mm-hmm. the arc, really competing on defense as always. Sadly, it doesn't matter when, you know, Kemba Fournier and Tatum don't show up. Uh, but <laughs> Marcus has looked good. If Jalen Brown was healthy, maybe they would have won one of these games. Um, now, I th- this series is super boring, man. It's Marcus, I think, and Jason Tatum have been the two best players for Boston so far. And, you know, Katie Harden and Kyrie have been the best three players in the series. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I had the Fearless Warrior Award designated for Marcus Smart in case we didn't touch on him because he just keeps shooting. 13 shots in game one, 13 shots in game two. Right now, he's Boston's leading scorer through two games. And, yeah, it's a double-edged sword with him always. And I said after game one, I had a feeling it was going to be too much Marcus Smart. I've decided it's the right amount of Marcus Smart, and they need this much because no Lord knows nobody else is going to step up. And you might as well have a guy who is a competitor and believes in himself and will take those shots. And yeah, maybe it's not as pretty for the rest of the series, but he's been really good through two games. I'm going to give the MVP of this series, call me crazy, to Joe Harris. This is a very unconventional interpretation of most valuable player, but I didn't want to talk about one of the big three because we always expect it. But I think game two was just a reminder of how easily Joe Harris can go out there and win you a game. Obviously, he didn't do it single-handedly, but put up 25-4-3 on 7-10 of 10 from 3. And I think we sometimes forget or don't talk about enough that the Nets don't just have the best 3 in basketball. They have the best 4th guy of any team out East as well and maybe have the best 4th guy in the league. I mean, you can debate him versus Bojan for the Jazz or Aiden or McCall, whoever you think the 4th guy is for the Suns. But offensively, I don't know. He makes a case. I mean, the level of efficiency that you get from him as a scorer and how easily he fits alongside your three best players is just so spectacular. And I don't think we acknowledge how crazy that is enough. Like, he takes them up another level offensively. Having a guy who can make 50-plus percent of his open threes, it's ridiculous. And he stands out even more compared to the rest of this net supporting cast that remains eh. And some of these guys remain unproven. And it's how much do you trust Blake, Jeff Green, even a Landry Shamit in big moments. I don't know. They have their good days. They have their bad days. A Claxton, all these guys. But I trust Joe Harris every single time out. He is phenomenal, and he was phenomenal in this one. And he is valuable in the sense that you need more than three guys to win a title. I mean, maybe with these three guys you don't because it's the best big three we've ever seen. But he is a really, really, really good fourth guy. Always has been and has been in this series as well. No, I mean, he's a terrifying fourth guy. I I can't think of a... Name a team whose fourth guy is this dominant a shooter they don't exist you can't yeah no 100 percent. so just another thing that makes the nets all that terrifying what's your second award in this one uh my second award is the b word award uh, you know you may think i'm giving this award to kevin durant because of what uh term he was called by evan fournier but in a surprise turn of events i'm actually going to give this to danny ainge uh the b word as in bum because he built the worst bench <laughs> ever i mean like i i just thought about this if 
even if Jalen Brown was healthy, and I do think this makes this a you know, a more competitive series, obviously, just because you have two stars in Tatum and Brown. They've got to, you know, spread the wealth, so to speak, on defense. It takes the pressure off the rest of the guys. I picked and, and <laughs> I picked this Celtics team before the season started to the NBA Finals. I don't know what I was thinking because I look at this <laughs> bench, you know, at the end of the season. I guess I expected more out of Aaron Neesmith, more out of Peyton Pritchard. I don't know. It's... The only guy that you can depend on night in, night out on this bench is Robert Williams. And that's a problem. I mean, like, I I think we've... Danny Ainge deserves his credit for building those really good teams with Kyrie, with those really good benches. You know, they were deep. Al Horford, Morris. They had a bunch of talent. It doesn't matter. Now they're in peril. And this is one of the worst benches in the league. I just think that if Danny had done a better job all season long of building this unit up, even if JB, you know, gets hurt at the same time, this is a competitive series because you have a competent bench. When you have six guys that you can depend on when other teams have nine and ten, you're just going to get outplayed off the floor. This was the biggest issue all season long. It is still one of the biggest issues here in the playoffs, even if Jalen Brown isn't healthy. Um, I think it may be gut check time here in this offseason for Danny Ainge, man. It's got to... He's got to pull the trigger and uh, get this team back into genuine contention. Yeah, and we touched on this last episode. When you're playing Tristan Thompson, Aaron Neesmith, and Jabari Parker all 20-plus minutes in a playoff game against the Brooklyn Nets, it's over before it started. This has been a problem for them all year. It was the biggest difference between them this year and last year, I think. They didn't get enough shine after they put this roster together because they just lost so much in that respect and have so many guys who they can't really rely on. And it's been obviously a massive part of their shortcoming. And I was talking with a couple of my buddies just yesterday about all the draft picks the Celtics had who could have turned into players who could help them win right now. The Desmond Bain pick, the Tease pick, the Ty Jerome pick. Like, those guys are young on cheap contracts who play winning basketball in a way that you don't often get from young guys. And where are they all? They're obviously all playing elsewhere while the Celtics rely on young guys who aren't good or they rely on veterans who just don't fit and don't play good basketball anymore. And it is a remarkable pit that they have dug themselves into here. And, you know, it's not like they're in a impoverished situation here. They still have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown when they're healthy. But outside of that, there's a lot more building to do than there was a year ago, than there was two years ago. And they just continue to climb backwards in that respect. So... I agree with you on Danny blundering a little bit here. I'm going to give the too much on his plate award to Jason Tatum, who has such a burden on him right now. Game one, goes six of 20, finds a way to still score 22 by just repeatedly getting to the line, which I love from him. I love seeing that persistence, keeping shooting, keeping getting downhill. He did what he could playmaking as well. Then game two, nine points on three of 12. But I still liked his aggression. I mean, he was getting to the bucket for tough finishes in traffic. Half of his shots have come in the paint overall through two games this series, which I like to see from him because I don't want to see him settling and falling into some of the bad habits that he does at times. Those shots just weren't falling, and they weren't all easy. A lot of them were two guys on him. A lot of them were, again, in traffic, through contact. But he was just not going away, and I love that. And I love that about Jason Tatum. He does not just let himself fade like that in these big spots. And then he gets poked in the eye in the third quarter, and next thing you know, he has to stop playing, and he's out for the rest of that game, and apparently his eye looks terrible now. And that just sucks, dude. Like, how much can a man get thrown at him where, first of all, he has this gargantuan burden on him, his shots aren't falling, but he keeps coming at you, and then he literally gets hurt. Just what a bummer. 
and it sucks that we don't get to see Tatum make a deep run this time around because it was so much fun last year. It was so special last year, and we're not going to see it happen again. But he's just got too much on his plate, and we knew that coming in, but it's been kind of just uncomfortable and a bummer to see it actually play out. Let me ask you one last thing here. Overall, do you feel better, worse about the Nets through two, same as you did coming into the playoffs? I mean, that's a good question. I'd say a little more confident just because we're seeing the big three work together. Um, and I mean, I think mm-hmm. the I'm a lot more confident after game two because the first half was really concerning just with the cold shooting stretch that we saw them go on. Um, nah, I'm decently confident. I mean, and I think Joe Harris going off makes me even more confident in this team because, you know, it just goes mm-hmm. to show, yeah, you can take away Kyrie. You can single Harden out. You can single KD out. Guess what? You're late on that rotation. Joe Harris can dot you up for 25. So I'd say, yeah, overall, um, I'm more confident in the big three and the Nets. What about you? I feel the same. I just think that they're the best offense ever. We knew that. And I don't know. They've been competitive defensively, which has been encouraging. But I also think some of that is just the Celtics not making shots and not having reliable creators night to night. So I would say I feel the same. I mean, I've been confident since very earlier in the season, that they were going to be the team coming out of the East, and that remains true, and I remain fascinated by who could come out of the West and challenge them and how great of a matchup that would be. Okay, let's move on to the series that I wish didn't exist, that I was so excited for, and that has been beyond a letdown. It has been an abomination. Bucks Heat, who is the MVP of this one? Um, I've got two guys written down. Uh, The first guy that I think you have to highlight in this series is Drew Holiday. Even when he's not shooting well, he is picking guys apart in the pick and roll. He is dotting up open guys, and they are knocking down shots. Um, and it's weird because I don't think that we—I don't think that a lot of people—I don't think anybody really highlighted what Drew brings to this team as a really big necessity last season. I think we all talked about, oh, you know, they need a closer. Giannis has got to develop this jump shot. Maybe they just needed a secondary playmaker to take some of this pressure off and— I don't know. It's really proved effective here in this series. I thought this was going to be close, and Holiday's a huge difference maker, not only for his defense, but again, for the playmaking that he brings to this team. Um, the next guy that I highlighted is my boy Bryn Forbes. He's just a buck. I mean, when he's hot, he's mm-hmm. hot. Um, he's been knocking down his shots. Uh, he was super hot in Game 2. Uh, game 3, not as much, but 3-7 of seven from behind the arc isn't bad. Contributes 11 points off the bench. Again, he, I mean, he's a liability defensively, but he is a knockdown shooter, and he gets buckets, uh, but by far the guy I've been most impressed with has been Drew Holiday. I had so many questions about him and his game coming into these playoffs, what he would do for this team, and he has been, I don't know, honestly one of the most surprising players of all the playoffs so far. I have Drew as the MVP as well, and I don't know that I've been surprised by it. I mean, Drew is great, and he does what he does at a high level, but it's just been awesome to see in contrast to what they had last year, and obviously... When they added Drew, it was very clear that he was an upgrade from Bledsoe, but it was also like, okay, sometimes Drew can be a spotty shooter as well. And, you know, is this going to put them over the top? I don't know that it necessarily puts them over the top because I still don't think they're the best team out East, but they have a title caliber big three, which is why it's such a bummer that Dante DiVincenzo is out now because, man, that just makes guarding the Nets so much harder and losing one of your top five guys when you're trying to win a title in this landscape is really, really a tough break. But I don't think that it's really been one single guy who has been the MVP per se. It's been a collective effort, but Drew has been great. And in contrast to Bledsoe, who put up 12 a game on 25% from three in last year's playoffs, Drew's at 17, 7, and 10 on 52.5% from the field. And as you mentioned, hasn't been shooting well, but is still producing at such a high level as a scorer and a playmaker. 
I will say it's been a pretty unremarkable 10 assists per game. I mean, he's not like making really high level reads out of the pick and roll. He's mostly just making good decisions. And if you watch Drew, you know, he's not like actually a brilliant playmaker, but he's making good decisions. He's creating shots for other people and his bucket getting has been awesome. I mean, nifty stuff out of the mid range. Just the contrast is what I love because it, man, if the Bucks had bogey, they really might be my title pick, dude. They probably would be my title pick, honestly, because they are so good. They are so much better than last year. And I think that's been clear for a while, but it has been affirmed here because I thought that the Heat could still pose some matchup issues for them, and they obviously haven't. And that's honestly more about the Heat because the Heat have been terrible here. But the Bucks are better. They're more versatile. They're just stronger all around. And Drew is a massive reason for that. Let's go to the second award here. Who do you have? My second award is the Bring Out the Brooms Award, uh, and that is awarded to uh, Duncan Robinson for his comments last year. Uh, You remember the video uh, when they were going for their sweep against Milwaukee. Uh, The reason I'm giving it to Duncan, he sucked the last two games. Uh, He's (laughs) 3 of 12 from deep. All he is is a three-point shooter. I also want to highlight in this, uh, in Bringing Out the Brooms, I want to highlight another non-factor here for Miami. Um... Trevor Ariza has been an absolute dog water replacement for Jay Crowder so far in the playoffs. Like, he's not as impactful defensively uh, because of his size. And I'm not, like, he's just thinner than Jay, but also, you're not hitting shots, bro. He's a big reason why the Heat haven't cracked 100 points in two games. It's the reason they scored 84 in game three. Obviously, Jimmy's struggles have been a part of that as well, but. I'm so disappointed in Miami, bro. I think I might be more disappointed in Miami and Boston are my two biggest disappointments, I think, this season. And uh, I want you to get to your second word. I want to ask you, Carson, is this the biggest, like, precipitous fall-off you can remember of any, like, any team that went to the finals and then the next season? Like, can you think of a bigger drop-off? That's an interesting question. Lakers lost first round after their second title, but they were still really good. That was just a crazy West. I mean, I'm scrolling through the brain here, excluding years that LeBron left. Or no, like the 2014 Heat didn't win the title, actually, so that doesn't count. I don't know, man. It's been a precipitous falloff. It has not been good. And you talk about how disappointed you are in the Heat. I am literally giving them the utterly disappointing award. I don't have the energy to be clever. This entire year with the Heat was a negotiation of, of, okay, this is how they look. But at their best moments, they look like this. And if they could just do that more, then they could still be a fringe contender. And the last 16 games were the epitome of that. This is why I got excited before the playoffs and thought they could take the Bucs 7. Over their last 16 they were 12-4 and four and played as a top-five offense, shooting the hell out of the ball. And it was like, thank God, the team that is in these 85-84 to 84 slugfests, that team is gone, and we're going to see something close to last year's squad. And obviously, I didn't think it was going to be enough to beat the Bucs, but I thought it would sure as hell be enough to make it pretty competitive. And now, through three games, they're shooting 38% from the field. They're averaging 96 a game. And it has been every bit as ugly of offense as it was in their worst moments during the regular season. And after game two, I was so sure they'd rally in game three. I was like, look, the Heats are still a good team. Like, yes, they've been up and down this whole year. They've had some ugly moments. But the Bucs aren't going to make 22 threes again. This team has Jimmy Butler at the helm. They have guys who know how to win. And they just got flattened again. And it was like they never had anything. And seeing them regress to the offensive ineptitude that they did have at some points this year just sucks. Because I like the Heat. I think they're fun. I think that they have guys who are entertaining to watch. 
And they would have been fun if they had found a way to get to the form that they were maybe capable of this year. But what's crazy is it's been so much about the offense. I mean, they've still held Giannis to 45% shooting. The Bucs are only shooting 33% from deep overall. Like game two, they murdered them. In game one, the Bucs won in spite of shooting terribly. And in spite of those facts, I mean, those are two of the key objectives, right? Not getting killed from behind the line and not having Giannis destroy you. And the Heat are losing by an average of nearly 22 points per game in spite of that. They just look flat. The Bucs are steamrolling them. I guess we could get into some more of the specifics. I'm not dying to. I mean, Jimmy, shots haven't been falling. Bam does not have the takeover gear as a number two guy. Tyler Hero can't make a shot. Trevor Rees, as you mentioned, has just been bad. I mean, there was some optimism when they picked him up, but he just has not been close to a difference maker in this series. And uh, it's been disappointing. I don't think Oladipo would have helped. It's just ugly, ugly offense against a team that is really, really good. And we knew the Bucks were really good. I just thought the Heat could be pretty damn good as well. And turns out, not so much. Yeah, I mean, and <laughs> Tragic and none have both sucked. It has been... Well, Dragic was pretty good in... I mean, he was great in Game 1. He was pretty good in Game 2. It didn't matter. Game 3, he was bad, though. Sad. It's just sad. Yeah. <laughs> Bummer, dude. I will say, though, I don't like the Heat slander. I think people who go out and say Tyler Hero sucks don't watch enough basketball because Tyler Hero is good. I mean, yeah, <laughs> sure, he got overhyped, but, like, he's improved, and when the shot is falling, he's still a weapon, but the shot just has not been falling in this entire team, man. They just don't have enough firepower. And that was always the question. And it has been answered, Logan. It has been answered by their 96 points per game and losing by 22 a game in this <laughs> series thus far. So disappointing. But we will end on a positive note here with just the ballet of emotions that has been Hawks-Knicks. What a thrill this has been. And they tip off for us in a couple hours. So if you catch this one, maybe the third game has happened. Maybe it's happening right now. Who knows? But enjoy our dialogue about it nonetheless. Through two, though, who has been your MVP of this one? Uh, I think you, my MVP has to be Derrick Rose, um, and it's because of the role that he's been forced into uh, because of the talent around him here in New York. I mean, he has got to be the second-best offensive player for the Knicks to uh, be competitive in this series, and it's it's taking a lot of responsibility. It's playing a lot of minutes out there. It is, it's tiring work, man. I mean, he played 38 minutes last game. He put up 26 points, shot decently well from behind the arc, and it's just it's so interesting to me the, the drastic – contrast and you know how Rose gets his buckets it's that <laughs> that one like like off-legged one-legged uh mid-range uh leaner runner floater it's it's funky it works it goes in it's consistent and he's been reliable um when Julius fades you know even like game two like I don't think Julius played a dominant game their two best players Randall and Barrett like neither of them played exceptionally well but Rose was consistent he was there at, I mean, he's the best player uh, for the Knicks in Game 2. Uh, I will say, I'll let you get into your awards, I do think Game 2 was a complete anomaly. Like, I don't yeah. I don't think the Knicks can win in that fashion again. I don't expect the Hawks' offense to go that cold again. Like, Bogey's not going to go 0-4 in the fourth quarter from deep. He's not going to shoot 2 of 13 um, on the entire game. Like, the Hawks are just a more complete offensive team. I don't expect this offense to go that cold. But, uh who knows, man? Maybe maybe the Knicks defense can stifle them enough and uh, Derrick Rose can help <laughs> catapult them to a victory. But I've been extremely impressed, uh, impressed with D. Rose, and uh, I think he has been the MVP of this series so far. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think he's one of two acceptable picks. I would say the Knicks bench as a whole. I mean, because 
game one, Burks was so phenomenal. And right now, he and D. Rose are by far their leading scorers. They're combining for 40 points a game. And that is keeping them alive. I mean, I think the Hawks are clearly the better team. I fully expect the Hawks to win. But when D. Rose plays like this and when Burks plays like this, they certainly make it a lot tougher. And they are outmatched as far as offensive firepower. But when those two guys are scoring 20 a game, it gets a little dicier for Atlanta. What's so crazy is D. Rose has played 38 minutes a game in this series. He's played more than Julius Randle. I mean, that is just unbelievable, his willingness to step up to the big moment and his fearlessness. I mean, we know that he's fearless, but man, is he unafraid of the moment. And you talked about some of the shot making. He's so great at maneuvering that area like eight feet out where he can get those good looks up. He can throw up those floaters, but he doesn't have to directly challenge Capella because I mean, Capella obviously has impacted this series as he's impacted every game for the Hawks this year, but he can't take away D. Rose because D. Rose doesn't have to get all the way downhill, and those floaters can just be a shot to the heart, man, because there's really nothing you can do about them. So I think that that's a great choice. I'll go with Trey Young as my MVP. I mean, so clearly the best player in this series right now. I think the best player in this series, point blank. Give me him over Julius Randle overall, and sorry to the Julius Randle fanatics who may be upset with me over that, but I am upset with myself that in Trey's first two years, I keyed in more, I would say, on the flaws of him and some of his limitations than I did on the truly extraordinary talent that he is. Because, dude, this guy is one of the best scoring playmaking combos that we have seen in a long time and is going to be so special in this league for so long. 30 in both games, 10 assists in the first game, 7 in the second. Obviously was dominant in game one without really even using the three ball. And then in game two, had a couple of big ones from there. And look, we saw him create 20 of Atlanta's last 23 points in game one. Game two would have been the exact same thing if guys were just knocking down shots. I mean, DeAndre Hunter just looked a little bit tight and didn't hit a couple of wide open threes. As you mentioned, Bogey was missing. Trey's still creating those shots for them. And what bummed me out is after Hunter missed his second open three, I literally said, Trey is going to stop passing the ball. He's not going to trust his guys. Next possession, he takes a 35-footer, terrible shot. It takes them out of the game. When he can stop doing stuff like that is when he takes even another little mini leap as a player. But best player in this series, by far the best offensive player in this series. And the reason that Atlanta, I mean, along with obviously the number of weapons they do have, but the reason that all those guys play at the level they do because he creates so much for them, creates so much for himself as well, and has just been outstanding. No, Trey's an excellent pick. Um, Yeah, he's the reason that the Hawks offense goes. You know, man, I've been the biggest Trey advocate all season long. You are, man. Third-team All-NBA. I'm starting to think maybe I should have done it, too. I mean, his job was so much harder than, I don't know, what Kyrie Irving, but he's been outstanding. What's your second award for this series? So I've got two. My first one is the Meta No World Peace Award, um, and that's to the dude in the stands who spat on Trey Young. You know, a little bit of a, a double meaning here. One, what the hell is wrong with people today, as we've already discussed? Like, yeah, you let fans back in, and they don't know how to act. Um... I do agree with Charles Barkley, though. Trey Young should have been allowed to walk up in them stands and just hand that man a beating. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just disappointed. Uh, we should have had uh, Malice at the Garden. That would have been sweet. Uh, my actual award is uh, <laughs> uh, what you uh, just mentioned. Uh, it is the UMBC Award, um, and I'm giving that to DeAndre Hunter. Um, obviously, he wasn't at that game. It's a big reason we lost to UMBC, but... Uh, and dude, yeah, it was just a bad fourth quarter for DeAndre. You know, he did a good job of, uh, you know, being really aggressive, uh, getting free throws earlier in that game. But just, you've got to make those shots to keep your team in that game. I mean, he is the 
and he's not the sole deciding factor because of how bad Bogey shot, but late in that game, DeAndre could have made this a one-possession, a one-shot game, and you just can't miss those shots uh, late in the game, man. Uh, so for me, the UMBC award, just a disappointing fourth quarter for DeAndre Hunter, and he, Trey just can't have his teammates go that cold and expect to come away with a victory in this series, in this game, any game. 100%, because they literally cannot guard him out of the pick-and-roll. I mean, it is whatever option he wants. It's the floater, it's the lob, it's the kick to a shooter. Like, they can't take it all away. He's unstoppable there. And then it's just about guys around him knocking down shots. And I wish DeAndre was a little more reliable as a shooter right now because it comes and goes. And I really thought he looked visibly, I don't know if nervous is the right word, but I didn't think he was going to make those shots even though they were wide open. And that's weird for a guy who's obviously been in such big moments before. But... It was disappointing from him at the finish, although it was a really good first couple quarters, first three quarters even. I'm going to give the LVP here, the least valuable player award, to Neil Gallinari. First of all, for his haircut. Good grief, man. That is a man in his 30s who is getting, I don't even know what to call that, a mohawk? I don't know what it is, but it's terrible. But he's been atrocious this series. Six and a half a game on five of 21 from the field, three of 16 from deep. Just painfully bad. And he's so frustrating to watch because, like, this is how Gallo always is, but his shot creation is just jab, pull it in your face. That's kind of it. Like, he's obviously not getting by anybody. And you know you're getting a Gallo possession when he touches it because he just doesn't move the ball. And it's tough that they owe him $42 million over the next two years. I mean, at the time, I thought, okay, this contract is solid value for a guy who is so valuable as a shooter— but when he's coming off the bench and he takes these possessions where it's just tough shots, and of course he's going to make them sometimes. He hasn't thus far, but it's just frustrating to watch. And you touched on it. I mean, would have been nice if him, Bogey, Hunter, Lou, anybody other than Trey could have made a shot down the stretch in game two. Like, that is an anomaly. That's not going to happen again. This is a really good offensive team that didn't play like it in game two. And I agree. They do have too much firepower, but it's been a little too much Gallo for me. I mean, he has his moments. Obviously, was off to a not-so-great start this year and then rounded into good enough form and can be really good and can be a lethal shot maker because everything he takes is with a hand in his face and he still makes 40% of his threes. But when they're not falling, it's just frustrating. No, I mean, it's been frustrating all year, man. Gallo, it's not like it's just been this series. No, Gallo takes yeah. those shots every game. I also want to touch on the haircut. Bruh. Looks like... Somebody just took a bowl and was like, all right, you know, we're going to fade you up right. And then, I don't know what they just, it, it's ugly, bro. It, it's, Bad. I think, I think he's having a midlife crisis. Um, I will say though, uh, like I, I want to ask you, Carson, is there something I'm missing about Gallo's game? Like, did he do something different in Oklahoma City last year that, you know, made people think he was worth some money? Because all year long, Exactly what you described. Mm. No ball movement, tough shots. That's been his game all year long. Like, is it just the percentage? Is that the only difference from last season, or has it been a? Have we? Has he lost a? Has he lost a step athletically? Like, what is the issue this season? Pretty similar, man. I just feel like he was slightly better at it last year. I don't know. I mean, took a couple more threes a game, and the threes are so much better because when Gallo shoots inside the arc, it sucks because he. It's just going to be a long two. It's just going to be a bad shot, but. No, I mean, he has value because of the shooting, and, like, we shouldn't just ignore that because when those shots are falling, you know, he's valuable. 16 of his 21 shots have been from beyond the arc. If he makes six or seven of those, it feels different, but when he's missing them, it's frustrating. But, no, he's pretty much what he was last year. He's maybe lost a little bit of a step as he gets older here. Like, I don't think he's looked as good as he did last year, 100%. 
But part of that might just be situation. Part of that might just be, I don't know, he got a lot of good looks in Thunder because of the guys around him on the Thunder. But, yeah, he has not been good this series. I still think the Hawks are going to hold on. I still think they have too much offensive firepower. Do you agree there? Completely, 100%. Okay, well, any final thoughts on any of these series, any of these awards, any bums, any fights in the stands you want to see going forward? Is there any way I can, like, change my official prediction to the Lakers? Like, like can I can I no, do that, bro? not. No, unfortunately not, actually. The deadline for that has passed. It was before the playoffs started. Uh, you instead chose the Denver Nuggets to win it all. And then you betrayed them after two games. <laughs> no! Dude, one it game. was one game! <laughs> yeah, one game. Excuse me, because they actually played well in game two. Yeah. It's all right. You know what? If the Nets win, you still get half credit for that, because they were your initial pick. I don't want any, bro. Okay. All right. Well, no credit for you, then. But... We all get to enjoy some great playoff basketball. That's the good news. And you can all enjoy some more Nerd Sesh content if you want to stick around because Lord knows we are coming out with plenty of it as we are deep here in playoff season. As we may have mentioned a couple times in the first few minutes, I just did a video on how the fearless Grizzlies have demanded respect this season. Go ahead and check that out. Logan did one just a couple days earlier on Aaron Rodgers in the 2020 NFL MVP race. You should go ahead and check out. You can find our full podcasts on YouTube or on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen to your audio content. You can follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore sesh and on Instagram at nerd sesh. And with that, as always, I have been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. Nerd Sesh.